If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Zephaniah, it's a, another one of these prophets that we don't look at very often, and turn to Zephaniah chapter 1. That's where we're going to start tonight. Zephaniah chapter 1. Um, have you ever felt homesick in your own home? Have you ever been lying in your own bed and felt like it wasn't yours? Have you felt like a stranger in your own town? I think most of us have feelings like that. We may not put those words to them. We may not uh, say it in exactly that way. But most of us, if we are human beings, we feel separate from the place we are. Even if it's the place that we are supposed to be, even if it's the place with which we are most familiar. We may have lived there for all of our lives, for a great part of our lives, and we still feel that something is wrong, something is missing. Something is, according to Scripture. Something is. There was a time when human beings, men and women, a man and a woman, walked together in the garden with God. And because of sin, because of our rebellion, because of our failure, that no longer happens. We are separated from God. And being separated from God, we are separated from home. Even when we are in our own houses, we are separated from home. Zephaniah is one of these small prophets. He's only three chapters long. And uh, he, like all the prophets, First Peter says, longed to look into the things that now you get preached to every Sunday. Uh, Peter says, the prophets tried to find this out, but it wasn't revealed to them what is now made manifest to you. First Peter chapter 1, verse 10 and following. That you, the salvation that God has revealed... In Jesus Christ. And we see Zephaniah struggling with some of the same ideas that the other prophets struggle with. The righteousness and holiness of God. What that implies for this world. And, and how can we have a home if God's righteousness is what it is described to be. If you have your Bibles and you're turned over there to Zephaniah, you can see... This passage, very first verse, Zephaniah introduces himself, and it's a longer introduction than we get for most people. The word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, during the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. He tells you when he was prophesying during the reign of Josiah, and he tells you also his lineage because it turns out he's the, I think it's great, great-grandson of one of the kings of Israel, Hezekiah, one of the good kings. He's not in the royal, you know, he's not next in line to inherit the throne or anything. Those families diverge like all families, but he's of the royal line, you know, an offshoot cousin or something. And uh, he now is prophesying during the time of Josiah, another one of the good kings, a king who led an, a major reform, discovered the book of the law, and begin to proclaim it to the people. This is the latter half of the 600s B.C. The Assyrian Empire has been the dominant 
force on the world stage, or at least the world of the Middle East. It's been terrorizing all the nations around it. It's come and it's wiped out the northern kingdom. It tried to wipe out the southern kingdom, hemmed up Hezekiah, his great-great-grandfather, in Jerusalem like a bird in a cage. uh, Sennacherib says that himself. That's what he did. Uh, But he didn't conquer Jerusalem because God saved that city. Uh, But the, the Assyrians are a constant problem. They're themselves being threatened now by an invasion from the north and by the rising power of Babylon. If we're talking about 650 down through 600 B.C., Babylon itself is, is kind of getting its power back a little bit. And Nineveh is starting to be threatened by some, actually it's southern Russian invaders, the Scythians. They've come down around the Caspian Sea. They're horse people. They are dangerous They're really barbarian. I mean, they're the barbarians to the barbarians. Even barbaric people think they're, yeah, pretty uncivilized. And and so Nineveh is under pressure. And it's in this background that Zephaniah is called to prophesy. He probably was prophesying before Jeremiah, but he may may have seen the beginning of Jeremiah, the great long prophet Jeremiah. Uh, his ministry. He probably overlapped a little bit with Nahum that we heard about a couple of weeks ago. And he is a prophet of doom, like most of these prophets. He has a very angry prophecy. In fact, he starts out with one of the scariest prophecies, the, the second and third verse of chapter 1. If you've got it there, you can read it with me. I will sweep away everything. From the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both men and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the air, (coughs) the fish of the sea. The wicked will have only heaps of rubble. I will cut them off from the face of the earth. Why is God so angry? It's a question that Jeremy asked two weeks ago when he was talking about Nahum. Why is God so angry? Here he says, I'm going to do worse than I did in the flood. In the flood, you remember, the fish were fine. The birds were okay. Now he's going to wipe them all out. Why? Now, I think this is, as often happens in in the prophets, this is poetic exaggeration to help us understand the emotional content of what's being preached. Although, in Zephaniah, there's a mix. And sometimes he's talking about the real end of the world as well. Why is God so angry? What is it? that has him in such a rage. Well, as you read down through chapter 1, you kind of get a picture of what it is that is making God so angry. I will stretch out my hand against Judah, verse 4 says, and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will cut off this place from every remnant of Baal, the names of the pagans and the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roads to worship the starry host, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and those who also swear by Molech, those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. Why is he so angry at Jerusalem? Northern kingdom of the Jews has already been wiped out. Why is he so mad and he's bringing judgment on Judah and Jerusalem? Idolatry. Idolatry. People who say, oh yeah, I like God. God's okay. But I got these other gods too. I, I don't see the problem with worshiping both. 
Each God can have his own day. God's got Saturday. Other gods can have other days. It'll be fine. Swear by Molech sometimes. Swear by Yahweh sometimes. That's not going to be a problem, is it? And God says it is a problem. And it's a problem that has to be fixed one way or another. It's a problem that has to be solved. Let me ask you a question. Do we hurt God at all in any way if we don't worship Him? Does it make God weaker? Does it make God smaller? Does it make God less wealthy? Does it do anything to God if you and I don't worship Him and we worship something else? Does it hurt Him at all? No. God cannot be hurt by you and me. He's God. He's our Creator. We live in the palm of His hand. We are totally in His control. We do not have that kind of control over Him. We constantly think we do or hope we could or somehow imagine it'd be cool if we did but we don't have that kind of control i can't hurt god by refusing to worship him so what why does it make him so mad if i don't why it doesn't hurt him at all but he sees exactly how it hurts you he sees exactly how it hurts me if I refuse to worship Him, or if I share His worship with others, with other things, with other powers, with other structures. I am made for fellowship with God. That is my home. That is what is meant to be the place I live. Fellowship with God. Being nourished by God, and in turn using what God's given me, my gifts, in order to make God's will be done on earth. As it is in heaven. That's what home is. That's what's meant to happen. And every time I deviate from that to worship something else, to follow something else, to try something else, I am sucking poison into myself. I'm sucking disease and death and corruption into myself. God is so angry because he sees the harm that we are doing. Physical death is nothing compared to the harm that we do to our souls and ourselves when we refuse to worship God. And so God says, I'm going to come and I'm going to carry out judgment because people say uh, they neither seek the Lord nor inquire of Him. Look down at verse uh, 10. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will go up from the fish gate, a wailing from the new quarter, a loud crash from the hills, Wail, you who live in the market district. All your merchants will be wiped out. All who trade in silver will be ruined. That's a fascinating image. We have similar ones in other prophets. He's basically calling out different sections of the city. It'd be like saying, I hear an explosion in Bricktown. I hear, I see Devon Tower falling in downtown. I hear wailing from people in Nichols Hills. And I hear shouting of despair from Edmund to Moore. It, it, that's what it is. It's, it's, it's trying to get the people to imagine what it will be like when the city falls. Hearing all the shouts from all the different quarters, all the different parts of the city. He says, that's coming. And why is it coming? Why is it coming? At that time, verse 12, I will search Jerusalem with lamps. 
and I will punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left in the dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. God is bringing punishment on the world because we are living as if God is not real. God is bringing punishment on Jerusalem because Jerusalem is living as if God is not real. God's fine. We can have his name on our city. We can have his name on our temple. But we know he's not going to do anything. This is an old, old, old problem. This is a problem that we create for ourselves. If God punishes sin, the way it deserves to be punished, what happens to you and me? What happens to our world? See verses 2 and 3 of Zephaniah. If God punishes sin, wipe it out. It's gone. Right? But when God doesn't punish sin, what do we human beings start use that as an opportunity to start saying? God's not going to do anything. God doesn't care. God has no justice in him. There is no God to bring justice. The world is just random. It's just one thing after another. There isn't any good or bad. There isn't any right or wrong. There isn't any justice beyond the little bits and fragments we might impose on it temporarily. That's what we say to ourselves. If God carries out his judgment as our sins occur, we're all dead. If God shows any patience at all, we, we are invited or we invite ourselves to become cynical. It's a catch-22. Romans actually talks about this. I know I told you to turn to Zephaniah. Would it be okay if you turned over to Romans chapter 3? Keep Zephaniah, and it's hard to find again, so you probably need to mark it. It's a tiny book. So keep Zephaniah and look over in Romans chapter 3, where Paul talks about this problem of the righteousness of God being called into question just because he's patient and doesn't immediately punish sin. Look down in verse 21 that kind of sets the stage. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. To all who believe, there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice because in His patience... See where we are? Verse 25, Because in His patience... He had left sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did this to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so that so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. What's Paul's response to this problem? That if God punishes as sin deserves, we're all dead. The world is wiped out. If God is patient, sin in us takes the opportunity to say, there is no God, God doesn't punish, God doesn't care, there's no moral government to the universe at all. What's Paul's response to that? He said, God 
has found a way to be patient with us so he doesn't wipe us out and to carry out the full sentence that sin deserves. And he's done that through the atonement created by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. When all other human beings were faithless, when all other human beings refused to give God God's will, which is what we were created to give Him, Jesus Christ stood and said, Not my will, but yours be done. All the way to the cross, He said, Your will be done. And the faithfulness of Jesus Christ makes it possible for the punishment of sin that should fall on you and me to fall on Him. As He gives Himself up on the cross, He bears that burden for you and me. That's the amazing answer that Peter says the prophets like Zephaniah, they wished they could see it, but they couldn't see it. Even the angels wished they could see it, but they didn't get it either. It's been given to you and me who've had the message of Jesus Christ preached. That's how God solves the problem. Zephaniah actually talks about the sacrifice of God when God actually carries out His sacrifice. It's a sacrifice of terrible punishment. And now we know who was punished. Who bore. That punishment should have been you and me. You and I should have been sacrificed. But instead, Jesus Christ became the sacrifice. Turn over to Zephaniah chapter 3. Although Zephaniah has a lot of predictions of destruction, and chapter 2 is all about the other nations. He prophesies in chapter 1 about what's going to happen to Judah and Jerusalem, the Jewish kingdom. But then he prophesies about all the neighbors. And the ending, he prophesies the fall of Nineveh. Long before it happened, he prophesies Nineveh's going to fall. God's going to wipe out Nineveh. going to make it empty. going to make it a bunch of sand dunes. And indeed, that did happen because of the Babylonians. But in chapter 3, about halfway through the chapter, as he's getting towards the end of his prophecies, he begins to change his tone. Look down in verse, we'll start in verse 8. I'm sorry, we'll start in verse 9. Then I will purify the lips of the peoples. That's the nations. That's not the Israelites. That's the other non-Israelite nations. I will purify the lips of the peoples that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve Him, the NIV says, shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Cush. Uh, that's like, we're talking about way, 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 way south in Egypt or even pushing into Ethiopia. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered people, they will bring me offerings. On that day, you will not be put to shame for the wrongs you have done to me because I will remove from this city those who rejoice in their pride. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill. God through Zephaniah says, there's coming a day when I will bring in the nations. When I will purify the speech of the impure. And everybody will worship me. The NIV says, side by side, shoulder to shoulder. How is that possible? How is that possible? God Himself has instituted the division between the Jews and all the other nations. It's built into the law, circumcision, the priesthood, the temple, the land, all of those things serve to separate Israel from the other nations. 
How are the other nations going to ever come in? Again, the answer is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who fulfills the law by bringing it to the place that it was always intended to go so that the Word of God can be a blessing to all the people, so that the call of Abraham can be a blessing all over the earth to every nation and every time. Jesus brings that into existence. Zephaniah knew the problem very well. He longed to figure out and to see fully what it was God was going to do. That was not given to him. It's been given to you and me freely. We get to preach it every Sunday. Jeremy and I get to preach it all the time. You get to study it all the time. It's written in books. It's on little iPhones. We are so blessed relative to people as wonderful even as Zephaniah who were not given this revelation. And then look down in verse 14. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, Don't, don't fear, O Zion. Don't let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you. He is a mighty warrior. He will take delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. That one really got me this time as I was studying Zephaniah. It's been quite a while since I've looked closely at Zephaniah, I'll confess. That verse right there, verse 17, The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. In all the pictures that you have in your mind of heaven, who's doing the singing? We are, right? We're supposed to be singing. We and the four living creatures and the 24 elders and the multitude upon multitude upon all of We're singing. What does Zephaniah foresee? It's coming a day... When God will sing to us because He's so happy to have us. Because He's so happy to have us saved. Again, it's Jesus Christ who accomplished that for us. Those who sorrow, verse 18 says, those who sorrow for the appointed feast, I will remove uh, from you. They are a burden and a reproach to you. At that time, I will deal with all who oppressed you. I'll rescue the lame. I'll gather those who've been scattered. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they were put to shame. Is that talking about you and me? Sounds like it's talking about the dispersed people of Israel. Are you part of the dispersed people of Israel? Turns out you are. Peter says you are. He actually writes his letter to the dispersion which is the word that the Jews used about the dispersed people of Israel. That's us. Israel was never about race. It was always about following God. Right from the start, it was a mixed race group. It always had many, many races involved in it. It's always been about your loyalty to God and your covenant with God. And that continues to be true. I believe when Zephaniah is talking about this, he's talking about the gathering in of the Jews, but he's also talking about the gathering, a much bigger gathering in, a gathering in that was started on the day of Pentecost 
and has continued for the last 2,000 years of gathering in God's people. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. You ever felt homesick in your own house? You ever felt alienated in your own family? If you have, it's not because something's wrong with you. It's because something's wrong with the world. We've been separated from God. But that's not a permanent condition. Maybe tonight, maybe a thousand years from now, I don't really know. But as certain as anything is, God is coming back to take us home. One day, we are going to be with God as we were meant to be. That is a promise. That's a promise Zephaniah delivered to Jerusalem and Judah. It is a promise that the rest of Scripture delivers to you and to me. It's an amazing, amazing salvation that God has created. This covenant that he started way back with Abraham. He worked his way through the law of Moses and brought to its fulfillment under Jesus Christ and now manifested throughout the world in the churches of Christ. Let that story continue to spread. Let the exiles and the scattered peoples be gathered back together as we wait for God to come and take us home. If you need to respond to the invitation of God, if you need to uh, put on Jesus Christ in baptism so that you are part of his kingdom, or if you need prayers or help of some kind or another, then we invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.